You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we've got a topic we haven't got to talk about on this show entirely, but it's been related to other topics, because one of my uh, aspects on this show that I think is very apologetics-related is actually marriage. Because if we're going to reclaim marriage from the world who's decided to make it whatever they want to make it, I think one of the best ways to do that is to be living marriage where, you know, we all want, all of us as Christians say we want to do that, and we grow up in a world where we want to teach our children the right message about sexuality. Save sex for marriage, try not to be an object of lust, Respect your body, respect the other person's body, and try not to lust after others. Guys and girls, they each receive different messages, but sometimes the intentions can be good, very, very good intentions, but the message and delivery, not so good. And the impact can be not so good. Then, Is there a better way to teach our young children about sexuality, so they can be prepared for happy, healthy marriages. In order to discuss that, I've brought on Rebecca Limke. She's the author of The Scarlet Virgins, the book we're talking about, and she has appeared on The Federalist, Huffington Post, Iron Ladies, and To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, in addition to speaking on live radio about the topics in her book. So, uh, Rebecca, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Well, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. So I am just, I live a pretty normal life for the most part. I'm a 21-year-old housewife and mother, but I ended up writing my book because of my childhood. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a very conservative, sort of sheltered um, homeschooling community. Mm -hmm. And I was homeschooled from the time I was in first grade until I was about 16. I completed my classwork, and then I went on to college. Um, So during those two years um, that I was in college, I met my husband, and we really started kind of picking apart some of the things that really were terrible that happened in my childhood. Um, And from there, uh, we moved because I got a scholarship to the University of Oklahoma, and then right after we moved, I got pregnant. We had a really rough pregnancy. And then after my son was born, we went to the NICU. And after we went to the NICU, something in my husband and I both just kind of snapped. And for me, I started working through it about three months after he was born. Mm. So my entire writing career, if we want to call it that, was based on 
my son getting sick. And so I started writing about motherhood and just whatever I felt like. I was really, really into sociology in school. So I did a lot of sociological stuff from a Christian perspective and things like that. Hmm. But as things progressed, it got to the point where I started writing a lot about my childhood. I wasn't really publishing a lot of it because I didn't want to rock the boat. Um, I did publish an article on purity culture and modesty um, at one point, and it got a really good response, and I was very surprised. So my husband and a few people said, I think you should write more about this specific thing, maybe even a book. And I kind of went, yeah, sure. Um, but from there I did, I went ahead and started writing on a book and it took a year. Um, I think actually writing the manuscript took probably 10 months and then editing took, uh, editing and formatting and all that took the next two, but we got it done in a year. And basically the impetus behind it was I've actually lost some friends because of, because of what happened in my childhood. And I don't just mean in a physical sense. Yes, some of them have tried to commit suicide. Some have been successful. Mm. But I've lost a lot of friends spiritually because they said, well, if if God is just, you know, a God of a lot of rules and most of them, you know, as we knew them were seemingly very unreasonable, then that's not the kind of God I want to serve. And maybe he doesn't even exist in the first place. So there was a lot of apostasy coming out of what we dealt with as children. And that was really something between that and the suicide attempts that I wanted to address in the book, because my belief is that the, the vision of God that we had was skewed by legalism for like purity culture and modesty and things like that. And because of that, we lost a good relationship with God and a good relationship with each other because we felt so much shame just for normal everyday things that weren't actually sins Mm -hmm. that we didn't want to talk to each other because we didn't want to, you know, give away our sins to each other, even though, you know, some of it was just completely normal stuff. So Mm -hmm. I... My belief is that, you know, purity culture and the legalism within it really harms relationships with each other, but also with God. And that's something that I felt very, very strongly about addressing. Yeah, well, I suppose our age at the outset shows how another way that this is very apologetics related. I mean, we want our children to grow up with good Christian morality, including sexual morality, but it seems like we can say, well, the world's going to this extreme over here, and we swing the pendulum the exact opposite direction. Yes, yeah, and that's something I talked about in, I think it was the first and kind of second chapter of the book, Mm -hmm. because when I started it, I actually had a question from one of my friends who had really abandoned basically all of the purity culture teachings, even Mm -hmm. swinging the other way again, and he asked me, he's like, what caused this? Like, was this a reaction to something? So I researched it and it turned out that yes, it was a reaction. It was a reaction to the sexual revolution and Mm -hmm. the redefining of marriage and things like that, that we saw even, you know, a couple decades ago. And so that really pushed a lot of Christian parents to, you know, be fearful of, you know, how I'm going to teach my children and all this Mm -hmm. stuff. And they wanted to protect them completely. Mm -hmm. And so this, you know, purity culture was their answer, but it, it not only was it Kind of a bad answer, but it was also unbiblical. Mm-hmm. Now, you might be uh, might be some people out there who aren't sure what this term means exactly. What do you mean by the term purity culture? Yeah, so I actually have kind of distinguished what I mean with 
purity culture into two different things. And one is purity culture and one is the purity movement. Mm -hmm. So in, I believe it was the 1980s and 90s, there were some organizations that popped up to out of rising teen pregnancy rates at the time mm -hmm. to try to get those teen pregnancy rates down. And it was actually government funded. So mm -hmm. there was actually a degree to which some of purity culture was secular. Um, but I actually in that specific instance would call that purity movement rather than purity culture. Mm -hmm. So the purity movement is more of just a sort of trying to get the culture to sort of swing back to better morals and mm -hmm. more biblical morals mm -hmm. and just all of the other physical ramifications trying to bring all of that down. Now, purity culture is what I call the legalistic aspect of the purity movement. So where you have um, spiritual abuse and things like that, where the image of God is tainted by all of these rules that aren't actually in the Bible and a lot of fear. It's, it's fear-based rather than love-based. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, you have to do this for fear of, you know, SEDs or pregnancy or the wrath of God or whatever. And it's not, you should be loving your neighbor because God loved us. So there's mm -hmm. a fundamental difference in the reason why you do something in the purity culture. Yeah, I think it's important to say that the goals of a purity culture and such, we can agree 100% with the goals, but yes. the means and message is the problem. Yes, absolutely. Because who doesn't want less teen pregnancies? I yeah. mean, they. I absolutely understand where they were coming from with that. Yeah. You know, the, the only thing I really remember much with something like that growing up, and I'm not even sure you could say it wasn't growing up because it was when I was in college, and I remember I attended a Baptist church at the time, and I've told this story on here before, it's one I really like to tell, is that here I am a college-age guy, and I'm at my church, and we're doing something called the silver ring thing. Which, yes. And they got all these, uh, these teenagers up there who've taken a pledge. I mean, good, good for them. Glad to see they're uh, making a pledge to save themselves from marriage. And then the associate pastor gets up, and he gives a talk. Now, keep in mind, like I said, I'm a single college guy in the audience there. Mm -hmm. True, biblically trained and such, but still a single college guy. And he gives this talk, the associate pastor does. He gives maybe about lip service to the joys of sex and marriage. And then says things like, you know, if you have sex before marriage, it would be for selfish reasons. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I can agree with that. That's probably true. I mean, he says, you need to think about other things. What if you got an STD? What if you got pregnant? Think about the shame you feel. Think about what you would have to tell your future spouse on your wedding night. Think about the guilt you could experience. And I'm listening to all this, and as I'm here, I'm thinking, um, Pastor, excuse me, those sound like selfish reasons to me as well. Yes, and, yeah. And then, as I keep seeing back there, I'm getting bored. And what I tell people more and more is, look, if you are a preacher and you are talking about sex from a pulpit and you have a college guy in the audience and he is getting bored, you are doing <laughs> it wrong. That is amazing. I mm. love that. <laughs> that is so true. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that, that's... That's what happens, and I, I don't know how well the movement lasts. I mean, I remember reading also in college Lauren Winner's book, Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity, and she said that these abstinence movements, 
usually they only make someone hold off for about 18 months or so. Yeah, so I've actually done some research in that area because I've I've heard that before and I kind of wanted to know if that was true or not. And I love Mark Regneris. Um, he is a professor at uh, Austin University in Texas, I believe. And he has, I haven't gotten his new book yet. I'm super excited about getting it though, because he says it's like his life's work and I've loved all of his other stuff, but I have his books, Premarital Sex in America and Forbidden Fruit. And Forbidden Fruit has been so helpful for me. I know a lot of people aren't into heavy statistics, especially people my age that are, you know, in college and really tired of statistics. Mm. But I, I found them so helpful because it explained basically what I was seeing around me. All of my friends who were depressed, who were having like the serial monogamy where they were sleeping with people and not cheating on their quote unquote partner while they were in the relationship, but they were still going from person to person to person. Mm -hmm. And it was very heartbreaking for me to see that because that's Mm -hmm. not how we were raised. And obviously that's not what God would want. So for me, I'm sitting there going, wow, I'm so alone because I... I waited and my husband waited and we didn't we didn't even engage in these other forms of, you know, mm-hmm. sexual activity outside of marriage and he even talked about that where there was a, a rise in those and and kind of the reasons behind that and it was just so helpful for me to see why and and to see some of the correlations and things mm-hmm. like different denominational things and um I think something that really stuck with me was um there was at least two denominations that were very, very similar that had like the latest age for first sexual intercourse. And I thought it was so interesting that they were able to pinpoint all of that. But it was also helpful for me because I did get to see that there were other people that had waited. Yes, we were a minority, but there were others like me out there because it was, it was very isolating for me to grow up and continue to really in an area in which, you know, all of us were taught that, you know, sex is supposed to be in marriage, but because of all the things that happened, everybody else has taken a different path than I have. So it was good for me to see that, you know, I'm not alone, even though I am in my own friends group. Well, I'll go ahead and give a little bit about my story because, I mean, I know we're, we're beginning to some, you read them, your culture was highly influenced by I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I was <laughs> around cars or such, I think, when that came out. And it probably wouldn't have made much difference if I'd read it because I already pretty much wasn't dating. Yeah. Not because of lack of desire, but because I was the shy, quiet guy and such. When I was going for my master's, we got invited to the president's house for a dinner once for all of us starting the program. And most people were bringing their spouses and such. I said, hey, can I bring my parents? Because I still live with them. And he said, sure. I remember coming in. We said... Nick, how did you get through here without getting married? And I'm thinking, yeah, um, thanks for reminding me, okay? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but for me, then, I did go off to seminary later, and I was living with my roommate there. And at the seminary, <clears throat> many people know a story, I gotten to know Gary Habermas when he came and visited one time. And this was when I was 28. And he said, hey, Nick, do you know who Mike Lacona is? I said, yeah, I know who he is. He debated Barterman here. He wrote that book with you on Resurrection. I know who he is. And he says, well, uh, do you know he has a daughter? No. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Well, we were talking about her in the back. She's going for a hard time. And talking about how uh, she has Asperger's. And someone says, 
where Nick Peters has Asperger's. And he said, look, would you like me, would you like to get her email from me? She could use a friend right now, someone to talk to. And when I started talking to her, it was around August of 2009. I wasn't interested in another online relationship. I'd had problems with him before, and she had been wanting to get back with an old ex of hers, so there was no interest there. So we all knew exactly that going in, nope, this is just a good friendship. And besides, she had just turned 19. I was going to turn 29 next month. This is just a good friendship. July of 2010, we were married. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, and we, we did save everything. Although I say that when it came to the kisses and such, she's yeah. she's my first fair. And so we we share everything special together. And we did indeed wait for marriage in... I, I I I tell people, yeah, it's definitely, definitely worth it. And when I see some of my guy friends getting married, I always try and talk to them beforehand, give them advice and things like that. Yeah. And then just think, you have no idea what you're getting into, but it's going to be awesome. And yeah. <laughs> usually I'll ask them a question before and say, okay, uh, you can wait time to ask, do you really love this girl right now? Say, yeah, yeah. I say, okay, two things. I want to tell you. First off, I believe you. Second, you don't even have a clue yet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. But that's kind of my story on how I met someone special. And yes, we've been married for seven years as of July 24th this year. And wow. we did wait. And it is worth it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is so amazing. I mm-hmm. love that story. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how my husband and I were too. It was very accidental. Mm-hmm. I was very young when I met him and he was coming out of a bad relationship that he'd waited like, I think nine years for. <laughs> we were mm-hmm. both taught that, you know, your first, the, the person that you like is supposed to be the person that you marry. Mm-hmm. And so he was devastated at the time. And I was too. I had waited for somebody for about seven years, even though I was very young, mm-hmm. just because I had always grown up that way. And so I was very serious, very young. And we we became really close friends and best friends within mm-hmm. a couple months. And then when I turned 16, we <laughs> started dating. And then two years later, we were married. And it was the best experience I think of actually being friends first because mm-hmm. I I really don't think I could have handled it any other way just because of because of how I was with purity culture. Mm-hmm. Well um I think one way we could talk about this also is how you got in touch with me at Shri. Because one yeah. of the blogs I do follow is a uh, Sheila Ray Gregor's blog To Love, Honor and Vacuum. And she had her daughter, Katie, put up something about the purity culture movement. And you comment on my blog. That's how I found out about your work. You sent me a free copy of your book. So um, what, what, what message was Katie talking about that the purity culture gets wrong? Um, she, especially like me, is very, very 
irritated with the analogies Mm -hmm. for one both both of us have like two major things and one of them is that you know those analogies are so very harmful especially for women and men who have been sexually assaulted because Mm -hmm. it tells us that we're not whole because that part of us was taken and so you know it's it's very much an identity thing for us Mm -hmm. but beyond that both of us are of the of the mind and of the conviction that you aren't pure of of anything you do the only reason that we're pure is because of jesus even if you did you know everything right physically there's still lust issues there's still things like that and even if you didn't do anything sexually you're still a sinner you're still not pure if you're going to use that terminology and so that's something that both of us are very passionate about because we've seen the ramifications of it and it it still boggles my mind when i think about it because that is so easy for me to think about now like that's just obvious to me and i i wish that i understood more how it wasn't obvious to other people yeah i mean i think part of this problem also is something that i considered when uh she you know on her blog something about i don't think we should be telling our children to stay pure until marriage i mean why who who would not want that message and then she explained and said no, we stay pure after marriage, and that is what makes sense, because when you put it away, it's yes, like yeah. having sex is something dirty that taints you. Yes, yeah. Well, and fundamentally changes who you are, mm-hmm. because you are either virgin or not virgin in purity mm-hmm. culture. And virgin is good, but then they don't tell you that not virgin in marriage is also good. It's just yep. virgin is good, and that's all you get. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me about the old joke that I've read before a preacher saying, you know, when I was growing up, I was taught two things about sex. Number one, it's dirty. Number two, I should save it for someone I love. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is basically the extent to which we were taught. Mm-hmm. And you are right because about people who have been the victims of rape and abuse and things of that sort. But even outside of that, People who make mistakes in a moment of passion. I mean, I went through yes. dating. I went through dating and engagement and waited. And if you told me, I bet you were never tempted the whole time. It's like, yeah, guess again. I was definitely yeah. tempted. But there are people who do make mistakes and they walk away with this often thing of their damaged goods, as it yes. were. Yeah, and that's something that I've talked about too because I do have those friends that and and it also brings me back to David's story in the mm-hmm. Bible where, you know, he was he made a lot of mistakes both mm-hmm. sexually and then murdering, you know, the woman's husband and it's mm-hmm. just for me, I don't understand why we use the language of, you know, the permanent damage is there when mm-hmm. God can redeem anything. And not mm-hmm. only can he redeem anything, but he's already shown through David that he can redeem sexual sin and murder. Mm-hmm. Like, if <laughs> I, I feel like we limit God with the mm-hmm. damaged goods type of rhetoric. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. I mean, we have to say that even if someone's forgiven, it doesn't necessarily mean all that ramifications of your actions go away. If you if yeah. you mess around before you get married, you get an STD, 
finding forgiveness from God is great, but you're likely to still have a disease, for instance. Yes, yeah. And that's something that I've been really shocked about with my peers, especially when mm-hmm. I was in college. Mm-hmm. They had no idea how vulnerable they were to that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting in class and actually um, scientific principles of health and disease, as it were, And this girl had just found out that she had an STD and Mm -hmm. we were going through the chapter on STDs and she just started bawling because she didn't realize what ramifications there are for that. She had one of them that can harm a baby. Mm -hmm. And I had to sit there and, and be, you know, moral support because everybody else was either, you know, telling her, well, it's your fault or, oh my goodness, you know, this shouldn't have happened. He should have told Mm -hmm. you that he had one and all that. And I'm just like, yeah, this is a really horrible situation, but I'm really sorry this happened to you. And, you know, actually trying to be kind of in the middle and, you know, yeah, you do have to face these ramifications, but, you know, you're forgiven and loved and all that. So it was very, it was very eye-opening for me, that experience was, and just, you know, the ramifications and how much people don't know about them and how bulletproof they really believe that they are. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk some about Josh Harris, since his book had such an impact. I mean, his book was practically a Bible for many of many of your parents growing up, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And I actually, I think I've talked about that as it it was basically their second Bible. Mm. Um, I actually have a great relationship with Josh now, um, Mm. (laughs) which is uh, not something that I ever thought would happen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Jesus works in mysterious ways. So um, anyways, but yeah, I actually reached out to him on Twitter while I was reading his book, preparing to write my own book, because I got to this point where the communities that I had been a part of when I kind of aged out, when I turned 18 and when I got married, I was really looking for somebody to help me with what I was dealing with with purity culture. Mm -hmm. So I tried to find communities that would do that. And I found Recovering Grace. I love Recovering Grace so much, but I was not a Bill Gothard kid. I did not. I, Mm -hmm. I, yes, I grew up under some of that rhetoric, but it was not the biggest part of my life. And so they were very helpful, but there were still things that were missing. And then I went to a different organization, which I'm not going to name. um, And they were supposedly, you know, friendly towards Christians and things like Mm -hmm. that. I quickly found out that that was absolutely not the case at all. Mm -hmm. I was bullied. I was called names because I was still a virgin. Um, I had a lot of other issues because I was still... And, you know, and I do still lean more conservative than liberal, um, though I don't even use those terms anymore because it's it's just a lot more complicated to me than than those terms. And so I was just the outcast among the outcasts, mm-hmm. among the outcasts, because I was homeschooled. So that, you know, sets you in a separate category all its own. And then I was a homeschool who rejected some of the conservative beliefs. So then I was put in another category of the re- the people who reject conservative beliefs, some of them anyways, but then I wasn't liberal enough for them. So I was just, I was very isolated mm-hmm. at that point in time. And it was very hard for me. And they were very much into redefining marriage and things like that. And I was a bigot and I was all mm-hmm. these other things. And it was just, yep. I was so lost. And so, you know, it was just, very difficult for me to deal with that and to deal with, you know, being an outsider on every single point. And now, you know, I've found community and stuff, but in those moments, in in that time, it was always, people were either defending Joshua Harris tooth and nail, or they were 
completely and totally against him. Mm-hmm. And he was an evil person and he just sought out to make money off of other people's pain and all this stuff. And so I got to a point where I was like, okay, in writing my own book. So some people are saying that Joshua Harris is basically a demigod. And some people are saying that Joshua Harris is de- the devil reincarnate, even though they don't believe in the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to come to a crossroads and really make my own path with that. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to just pick one because I don't think this is right. I think he's also made in the image of God and I'm going to go make my own way with this. So I, I reached out to him on Twitter and I was like, hey, Uh, Do you still listen to people's stories about what happened with your book? And he said, absolutely. And we started talking. We DM'd a little bit. I sent him a copy of my book when it was done. He actually read it and liked it and he shared it, which was very, very sweet. Um, And then when he came out with, uh, let's see, I Survived, I Kissed Day and Goodbye, which is him and Jessica's documentary, I was full on board with it. I was like, I'm going to help you guys with this however I can. Obviously, I'm a small fish in the sea with my blog and everything, but... I was still like, you know what, I'm going to help you. And so I, I sent it to Sheila Gregory, which mm. she ended up really helping them promote, which I heard was a huge, huge help. And I'm so thankful that I was able to be a part of that. But I, at this point with Joshua, I, I've gotten to the, to the point that I, I describe it this way. I say, you know, I think that you can critique somebody's work while still loving the person. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's yeah. my relationship with him is I don't agree with his work and I've told him as much and I've come to it in a very loving way way at least I've tried um and so I kind of tried to break away from what everybody else was doing and I have received flack for that I have had people tell me oh you're defending him no I'm not defending him he does have to own up for what happened even if he didn't intend for it to and just be culpable for for what he is culpable for but I don't think he's culpable for any more than that I'm not going to destroy his life over something he wrote when he was 21 you know Mm -hmm. so that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at with that stuff I think it can be a good lesson some of that when you're 21, you probably shouldn't be riding expecting to be seen as an authority yet because there's still a whole lot to learn. Yes. And that's why I left my book as it was where I didn't, you know, have all the answers at the end because mm-hmm. I was like, look, <laughs> I am not going to repeat his mistake. We've learned from that. We're not doing that again. Mm-hmm. And I am 21 and I do plan on revisiting that and like adding to and revising the book as I grow older and as I have more thoughts on it. But I've had people say, you know, why didn't you, um, why didn't you provide like a bullet point list of here's how you get over this stuff. And I said, well, everybody does it differently. Um, And the main thing for me Mm -hmm. is that people are pointed to Jesus. And that's Mm -hmm. what I did. I wanted to be very minimalistic with it because that I know for a fact is right. Mm -hmm. And anything besides that is just second tier. So, Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and I think also I've heard that Josh himself has pretty much repudiated a lot that was written in that book, hasn't he? He's definitely working through it. I don't know that he's publicly said anything yet, but I know he's he's gotten to the point. He he told me what he liked about my book, and a lot of it was, yeah, you're right about what I wrote in my book, and it was me refuting that. So I know for a fact that he's definitely definitely on that path. Mm-hmm. Now, what exactly did he write in this book that's so wrong? I mean, what is so bad about dating to him, at least at that point in time? Well, he had a lot of incorrect assumptions, basically, Mm -hmm. and and incorrect correlations. So his major problem, just with the book in general, was that he conflated dating with 
sexual immorality Mm -hmm. when you can have sexual immorality with basically any form of courtship of any culture you know any any type of man and woman trying to get together to get married so that was one of the major things but in addition to that he he had a lot of language and verbiage that was very much contrary to the Bible in some ways where there was a little bit of prosperity gospel. Like if you do these things, if you avoid dating, if you, you know, think about it this way, then you will have a great marriage and, you know, great sex life and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, beyond that, he also had some stuff like the, I think it's the first chapter of the book where he has this story that is a dream that one of his friends had. And it was basically that there was this guy and girl at the altar and the preachers, you know, doing his thing. And the guy has all of his girlfriends start coming up at the altar with him. And she cries, the, the bride cries. And uh, he says, you know, I'm sorry. Cause she's like, who are these people? Uh, these are all the people I've dated. And I, even though, you know, I want you now, I've given them all a piece of my heart. And so that was where my homeschool group came in and said, okay, if you have a crush, you've given a piece of your heart away. That's an emotional SD that'll follow you into your marriage. Mm-hmm. So I really don't think that Joss intended for that to happen, but that's kind of, that in and of itself, I see some problems with just because it kind of ignores that, you know, there is forgiveness. And yes, there is ramifications if you've gotten physical and everything, but you can even have your heart broken or give a piece of your heart away to a friend, a platonic friend mm-hmm. that it just yeah. follows you around in life. So to there's a certain amount of promoting pain avoidance there, but also a certain amount of trying to make people feel guilty for things that are just part of life mm-hmm. as well um so there's that too there's so many things with his book that that concerned me there's also at one point he said that he was kind of in love with the concept of being in love where he was very very sort of wistful about it and didn't have a very realistic perspective on it which i'm glad he admitted in the book because that made it easier for me when i was reading it i was like okay this is this is the the mindset he's in when writing this and so that helped me kind of work through some things but those were some of the major things that i saw in his book yes about being in love with love i remember when we were engaged my wife and i met with someone i mean we were meeting with several different people and such because i mean we were a pretty popular couple and i think on facebook right now we're still a pretty popular couple as i've said every day except for sunday when i don't post and you might be even seeing this on my own wall I post some meme about marriage, and then I post a love message to Allie, public, every single yes, day. Yes, those are so sweet. <laughs> and I do it because I want everyone to know about love her, but something someone told us was, you know, there are going to be days that you're just so elated and happy with one another, and you're just so thrilled to be together, and then there are going to be days you're going to be going, why the heck did I ever marry this person? <laughs> Yes, there's there's lots of ups and downs in marriage. But yeah, I've seen those and those are so sweet. I told my husband one time, I was like, come over here, look at this. <laughs> so cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I've told him. said, look, women, if you want to marry a husband who is devoted, marry a nerd. Because chances are he'll be going for the rest yes. of us saying, what? You, you picked me? You, you actually wanted me? Wow, I can't believe it. <laughs> To get to uh, back to Joshua, though, I, I think one of the things he also has said he struggled a lot with, 
and I'm sure this is a struggle so foreign to so many guys out there, is the struggle of lust. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember reading that. And I was actually under the impression, uh, I don't know why, I think I just heard in the homeschool group that he had, like, waited and so that's why he was authority on everything, where he was like still waiting for everything until marriage, even kissing and stuff like that. And then when I read the book, I was shocked because I was like, oh, okay, so this is something that he has dealt with and dealt with on a very personal level. And so for me, I, that really helped frame it more for me because before I was like, wow, this guy just has no idea. Like, <laughs> I can't believe he wrote this book that, you know, it was all high and mighty and all that stuff. But then when I read that, it was very, very easy for me to empathize with him as a person and to see him as, you know, a fallen man and all that sort of thing. But also it was easier for me to to frame his book correctly in my mind as this is a reaction to what's happened in his life. Mm-hmm. And anytime you're going to have a reaction to something, it's going to be off. Because when we react to things, we're upended a little bit and we're not standing firm on our own two feet and on the word of God. And so... You know, that really, really helped me. That was something that my pastor always enforced with me was, you know, you really need to make sure that when you do something, it is not a reaction to something, but rather something coming out of you standing on the Word of God. And so that really helped me a lot when I read his book and when I read about that. I think it's really important to look at how different men and women grew up, because I remember when I was singer and such, I spent a whole lot of time wondering what is lust exactly? Because yeah. it seems the idea of, okay, if I get look at a woman, a younger, and any thought of sex crosses my mind where I must obviously be lusting, where maybe not necessarily. I mean, for instance, once I'm engaged, I should definitely be thinking about what that's going to be like and such. But yeah. it. It, it, it's a fine line, and I'm sure you women had something different, but for we men, it's lust, and I think it's a shock to women. This is something that men struggle with every day. I mean, Robert Gagnon gave a talk once about sex and marriage and questioning him about adultery, and some lady in the said, well, what about spiritual adultery? He says, what do you mean? Like, what about if your man is lusting? And she's, he pretty much said, lay if you're concerned about your man lusting there, where he was probably guilty of spiritual adultery on your wedding day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I, I always find it fascinating when men talk about lust because mm-hmm. I am one of those people now who is so curious that like all of the social, you know, stigma and everything just kind of falls away. And I'm like, tell me about it because I want to understand. And I've talked to so many of my female friends too. And I've seen such a different in the way men and women lust. But I've been so surprised that so many women have the same experience as me where we do have some kind and form of that. But it's almost dramatically different in a way than men because it's it's less visual and it's more emotional in some cases at least. And so that's been really telling for me and really helpful because I've been able to understand kind of how that works more. And I've been able to help, you know, my male friends more. Mm-hmm. And they they, you know, have been amazing with me to to be sitting through me asking them 20 questions and my husband obviously gets them all the time as well. But, you know, I think it's I think one of the things that I really wish would have happened in my childhood is that we could have actually sought 
sat down and talked about it. Mm-hmm. Like maybe with a pastor present or something where the mm-hmm. youth could have saw, sat together and asked each other questions and gotten honest answers about what each other was dealing with. I think that would have fostered so much respect between the sexes and so much understanding and more compassion and more of an understanding of, you know, if you're going to dress modestly or if that's something that's important to you or something you're convicted about, then here's kind of how that works instead of it just being an abstract thing for us. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been amazing. Well, what is this difference? Because you're talking about lust and you saying, well, it's not exactly physical for a woman. And I'm thinking, that doesn't really make much sense to me as a guy. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I do know, like, a lot of women do have physical type lust similar yeah. to men, although I still think it's different. And obviously, we'll never know for sure. But um, there's there's a degree to which it is physical because, you know, I I've joke about it all the time because it angers me so much. But uh, people will say that, you know, women don't lust. And I'm like, okay, so who's going to the Magic Mike movies? <laughs> yeah. Who, who's, who's seeing Fifty Shades of Grey here? Exactly. Exactly. But I think for women... A lot of what I would define as lust for us is something that's more of an emotional thing where it's, it, it is that storyline more than it is just a physical body. Mm-hmm. So like say, um, like say Fifty Shades of Grey where there's this power dynamic and it's very, very messed up and very, very unhealthy, but women l- like flock to that, that power dynamic and, and the, the physical stuff is just kind of a cherry on the cake from what mm-hmm. I've seen. Um, so, because I, I know a lot of women who do romance novels, so mm-hmm. many women. And for me, <laughs> most romance novels I consider to be smut. I'm like, that's not, that's not coming in my house. Mm-hmm. I'm not touching that. Right. But I, I think that romance novels are kind of the equivalent of men's pornography in a sense. Yeah. If that kind of makes the distinction of lust between the sexes, I think that's how I would put it is women kind of go for the storyline and the physical stuff is the cherry on the cake and women or men go more for the physical aspects and the storyline is more the cherry on the cake for them. But I don't know. That's just my theory. Yeah. I, I think the usual thing is that for men, it starts physical and that leads to emotional and for mm-hmm. women, it's the reverse. Yes, yeah. And that's why, I mean, for we men, I mean, if, when we're married, if when we get to be intimate with our wives, that screams love to us. It tells us everything is okay. Mm-hmm. When we go without, it's like, okay, do I, do I really matter to you anymore? Do you care about me? Am I just a glorified roommate? What is it? Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, now, you grew up, again, in this purity culture, and I, I think I've noticed in many ways, it seems to target women the most. That women seem to be a problem. That the women need to keep themselves under wraps because, by golly, these guys, they just can't resist their hormones, their raging hormones, and so you have to keep it under control. Yes. And I know a lot of my friends and I have felt sort of like an object and a commodity because our worth was so tied to what we had and hadn't done sexually. Mm-hmm. And our male friends, you know, we watched them do a chase after girls in bikinis while we were sitting there practically in burkas trying to make mm-hmm. their moms happy mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to be the girl that he'll take home to mom someday and all that stuff. And so it was a very 
hard for us because we, we did feel like we didn't matter as much to God mm. and to everybody else. We felt like we had all these rules and the guys didn't. And we our worth was based on what, how well we kept those rules. And they just got away with quite a bit. And so for me and a lot of my friends, that that difference and and just the degree to which we were affected, I do think that we were affected more by purity culture than a lot of our guy friends were. And I think also we were affected in different ways just because mm-hmm. of the messages we got. I think the boys also got those messages, but they, they also had the counteractive message of, well, boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. And so they, they didn't have as much culpability and as much ramifications at the time as we did. If we, I actually heard a story uh, the other day that this, this lady kissed somebody um, when she was like 17 and she basically got excommunicated from her church. Mm-hmm. And the boy, nothing, nothing mm-hmm. at all. And so that really, for me, kind of really demonstrates the distinction between, you know, Thing, the the ramifications for boys and girls in my childhood was just astounding difference. Mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, there is some truth to the message that girls were given. It's like, don't wear, if you can help it and go around guys, don't wear a short that's really, really a skirt that's really, really short. Or yeah. not wear things that have an extreme plunging v-neck and such. Because mm-hmm. I mean, guys do struggle with those kinds of things. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with a girl wanting to look pretty out in public. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a hard balance. I'm honestly really, really glad my son is a son and not a mm-hmm. daughter. Because I don't know what I would tell a daughter. I really don't. But I think... I've thought about this a lot because I still, my husband lets me wear anything I want around the house, which has been very, very helpful for me because I have like free reign. I get to wear anything. And that's not something that I've ever been afforded. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, I had to wear boys basketball shorts that were past my knees. And, you know, they wanted us to wear like long sleeves and jeans to go swimming, Mm -hmm. which is very impractical. Yes. Um, And also, you know, I wasn't even allowed to wear sandals at one point because one of the dads had a foot fetish. Mm -hmm. So it was just all of these different things that, you know, I was just, I didn't, it didn't even matter to me. Like I wasn't even in puberty yet. And I just wanted to wear shorts that were a little bit above my knee. And that was a huge deal. And so now to have all that freedom with, you know, just around the house has been great for me because I did develop anorexia out of the modesty rules that Mm -hmm. I had because I wasn't allowed to wear makeup I wasn't allowed to really dress myself and the only thing that I did really have control over was my weight and so for me the messed up mentality that I had at that point in time was well those boys may be going after the girls in bikinis now but someday they're going to settle down and someday maybe they'll choose me and when that happens even though I haven't been able to wear anything that attracts them or makes me feel pretty or anything maybe then they'll love me because I'll be so thin Mm-hmm. That they'll be like, wow, this is great. And so I was I was dying. I was in the, the stages where, you know, your body cannibalizes your heart and lungs by the time I got help. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't the only one either. Some of my friends also developed eating disorders out of this. And it's just 
so sad to me and so difficult now because I, I still struggle with, okay, well, how do we explain it to kids? How do we explain? Because it's true. So much of it is true. Yeah. Men do struggle and, yeah. and women can do things to help. But at the same time, I think the thing that I come back to is it needs to be a genuine conviction because then you understand why you're doing it and you're doing it because you love the person and not because it's a arbitrary rule that's there. So I hope to at least impress on my son that much, even though it doesn't, it's probably not going to affect him as much as it would a girl. Yeah. Shanti Fairton reports something in her book for young women only. My wife had, I was kind of leafing through it one day recently about a story about a, about girls finding it odd that the way they dress, why can't guys just control themselves entirely and such? So they, yeah. this teacher had an, an assignment where she uh, had a bag of chocolates put on her desk and told the girls in class, they said, okay, now girls, now you're supposed to look down and keep writing sentences. And if you look up and start looking at the chocolates and such, you're going to get in trouble. Oh, a, no. <laughs> a lot of girls got in trouble, and and the she said, you know what? That is exactly what happens when you dress provocatively with the guys, because they will notice it. And even as a married guy, I still notice it. And it, I mean, like me, guys, I try and master the eye roll, the look away, everything. <laughs> And one of the stories I told about how hard it is in our culture is walking alone at the mall one day after being married, and here comes a girl who's heading the way, who's heading in my direction. She's not heading towards me, but she's heading my direction. She's like, okay, do what I always do, look away. So she's coming to my left, I look to the right, which is where Victoria's secret happens to be. Oh, no. So, so like, yeah, yeah, and what I... Well, I tell women, I say, look, if you want to understand what's going on in your husband's mind, this is the closest analogy I can think of. Picture being on a diet and going through the chocolate or the ice cream section at the grocery store and being told, no, you can't have all this. That is exactly what your husband goes through every day in the world. <laughs> I actually really like that. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, a pretty good, that's a pretty good analogy. I I've, I have that book, that mm. For Women Only book, and I, for some reason, had forgotten about that chocolate thing. Mm. But that's really, really good. I, I've, my husband, I ask him so many questions, too. I know I said that, but yeah. I am so curious because I, I just want to understand and I want to help him and better empathize and all of that. Mm. And he said that, you know, it's, it's kind of a the way men's brain is wired mm -hmm. that, you know, a certain amount of skin will make you look. Mm -hmm. And so that was really helpful for me because I was, I, I was raised around a lot of ladies who were very, very, very self-conscious. And I'm sure there was more going on than just, you know, their man looked for one second and then looked away. But that helped me because, you know, with my eating disorder issues, I could very, very easily lapse into that sort of behavior by feeling inadequate because of him looking. But he's very, very good about not looking anyways. But that just helps yeah. to, to be able to know that that's what's going on and to know that, you know, he knows what to do. He looks away and all that stuff. And, and that's just how it works. He's, he's not a slave to it. He yeah. does. He is able to look away and all that. So I think, very, mo very I think most women would be pleased to know that for we husbands, if we could, we would happily shut off that part of our brain 
in public because we really don't want to. But on the positive side, we bring home all that for you and we want to give it to our wives entirely. Yes. Now, the, let's going back to, go back to your childhood then. And the thing is, you were then being like hyper vigilant and such that you felt you were. I'm getting, I have an impression book, you've kind of felt like you were dirty just for being yes. a woman many times. Yes, yeah. And that came from the fact that I couldn't control so much. I couldn't mm. control if a man had lusted after me or not. Even if I were, you know, everything that I was told to, you know, it ended up, okay, you can't wear sandals now. Well, great. So I tempted somebody with my foot. That's awesome. Mm. <laughs> like there was just, there was nothing I could do to protect myself. And since I was told that men didn't have self-control through like verbal means, yes, yeah. but also through the way everyone acted, I was very scared for my safety. Mm. I felt like I was already defiled because, you know, who mm. knows what I've worn in front of somebody. Like I didn't even have that scandalous of a wardrobe because I had hand-me-downs from my best friend's brother. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just t-shirts and basketball shorts. But still I felt like I had already, you know, done something bad and made men go off the rails. And, you know, even after that, I, even when I was doing the best I could, I was, I was basically, you know, dressing like a normal anorexic would where I was trying to hide my weight loss. So you couldn't see anything. You couldn't even see the fact that I was a girl and I still was scared for my safety. I was still, you know, scared that somebody was going to rape me or somebody was going to hurt me and it would be my fault. And not only would it be my fault, but if it, if it wasn't my fault for whatever reason, people would still think it was because that's how things worked in my childhood. And so it was very scary for me. And, and just, it was very hard because my identity was kind of temptress. And even though, you know, I was just a completely normal girl and that really led to a lot of self-hatred, a lot of, you know, you can't do this right. Mm -hmm. Why can't you do this right? And all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, I think some of that should be said. I mean, yes, we men do struggle with self-control, but if we do stumble along the way, it is our fault indeed. We can't blame the woman, say, where she was dressing provocatively. If she hadn't been dressing that way, I wouldn't have done X, Y, Z, where maybe she shouldn't have dressed that way, but you are the one responsible for what you're doing. And I think also on that, it's important to say that men sometimes need to watch the way that they're dressing out in public because they can dress provocatively too. Yes, yeah. And I, I actually think that that's a great point because that's something that I bring up because while women normally do go the route of, you know, emotional at attachment and mm -hmm. that's sort of how we lust first, mm -hmm. I, and a lot of women do struggle with just general physical lust as well. And there's a lot of things, especially I hate going to the pool. This mm -hmm. probably sounds awful, but I hate going to the pool because there's a bunch of shirtless guys there. And usually it doesn't bother me, but I think initially what that was, was because I had so much suppression of that sort of thing mm -hmm. that once I got married and once that started being okay, then it was just it, it all came back. And so not only was I attracted to my husband, but oh dear, there's shirtless guys here. I'm leaving. <laughs> like it's, it's very difficult with that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I've had to work through in my mind, what do I do then? 
Mm-hmm. And I, I still haven't come to a great conclusion besides just watch the toddler and look down. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's interesting also that this is another way that men and women differ because I struggled a lot before I got married and such. And then I married my wife, and the first time I ever got to see her totally, of course, was on our wedding night. And so, yeah, my eyes are only for her, but now it's like, okay, now I understand a little bit more about what's going on under there. And so that makes all the other women seem totally different right now. I'm having to watch totally. So, I mean, if anyone would say... You know, once you get married, all the temptations and struggles go away. But they, they, they're still right there. Yes, and they change just slightly. Where mm-hmm. it, it's, it was very traumatizing for me to go through that because I went through that too. And I was just like, I am a horrible person. I cannot deal with this. Now mm-hmm. I know what men look like naked. I can't. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was terrible. I love my husband. He he was so supportive with me going through that phase where I was just traumatized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I am curious. You know, because, I mean, when you were growing up, this is something you didn't explain too much in the book. I mean, you talk about how you didn't want to date or kiss anyone else. You know, they were, you were absolutely, absolutely, absolutely sure they were the one and such. So, how did you and your husband ever even start dating? Well, it's a very complicated story. And because of some of the details, I won't be able to tell it totally here. Mm-hmm. But basically, I came to him with mm-hmm. some of some abuse that had been happening. Mm-hmm. I kind of tested things out. I watched how he interacted with his family. We met at church. Mm-hmm. And I saw that he treated his mother well and his sister well. And I went, okay, this guy must be safe. I have to have somebody. I was on a very, very dark path at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And I knew what was going to happen to me was either I was going to run away and end up on the road dead with some STD um, or I was going to end up just dead. I was going to mm-hmm. kill myself. And I knew mm-hmm. that. And so at that point, I just started scoping it out because I was to the point that the anorexia was starting to take my lungs and heart. And he was a registered dietitian. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of scoped it out and I started talking to him a little bit. And I asked if I could ask him some questions and I, I faked it. I was like, you know, I think my sister might have an eating disorder. And so I'm just really worried about her. I want to know, you know, what you think since you're a dietitian. And so I just gave him all the information on me. <laughs> And I Mm -hmm. told him what was happening. I told him that I'd grown the white hair all over my body and all that stuff, which I told him it was, you know, my sister's body and everything. But um, eventually he was like, okay, um, here is a BMI chart. And it's not like the ones online. You actually can do it yourself and all that stuff. So, you know, it's correct and all of that. And uh, she'll need to be over this number. And if she's not, then she'll need to start eating a little bit more and all that to keep alive. Um, And so... Then uh, I think the next Sunday after church, I took him aside and my I was so nervous that my legs were shaking and one of them actually turned purple. He had to sit me down because he was like, are you okay? What's wrong? Because I was about to pass out. And basically I said, you know, it's not my sister. All of this stuff, all the abuse that I've told you about is happening to me. And I am really having a hard time breathing and my heart's irregular right now and all this other stuff. And so he sort of just listened. That was really all he could do. He was a, a bit older than I was. Um, mm-hmm. And I was 15 by this point. Um, and basically 
he gave me he gave me all the advice he could and he gave me his phone number and he gave me a copy of Hillary McFarland's Quivering Daughters because a lot of what I was dealing with at the time was an abuse of um, masculine role in my life. And I, I hate using the terms patriarchy and mm. things like that because it's been so abused by feminists, I feel mm. like, where everything's the patriarchy. But it, it really was a patriarchal thing that was abusive. And so, mm. because, you know, I think at this point we call each other complementarian, but really we just try to follow the biblical, you know, mm-hmm. roles and everything. But I had been taught in, um, in my homeschool group that, uh, you listen to the oldest man in the room, even if the oldest man in the room was a teenage boy asking you to do something that you knew you shouldn't be doing. Mm. Um, and that a lot of girls got assaulted that way. And so I was in a very bad place with that and just some other things as well. And so we actually spent Christmas Eve um, one day in the snow outside of my church. And he took me through Ephesians and a few other um, passages that were relevant to that sort of thing. And he took me into the original language and started teaching me what it actually meant in the original language and all of that. And it was so eye-opening to me, but it was also so shocking because it went against everything that I had ever known. This Mm -hmm. whole, oh, men are supposed to protect women. Men are supposed to cherish us and love us. And the only, they're not supposed to lord power over us. They're actually supposed to die for us. That was huge for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it made it just made everything make sense. It made Jesus make sense. It made you know, all of the passages I never understood. It made sense then. And so he just started slowly putting pieces back into place that that were actually healthy. And um, things actually escalated when I was working at an ice cream shop. I was developing food allergies from the stress of childhood. I endured a lot of abuse and it got to the point where, you know, my body just knew I was never safe. And so it kind of went into overdrive and started having autoimmune problems. And the doctor, you know, was just kind of at a loss. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so I started developing food allergies out of that. And one day after work, I ate um, some ice cream that, you know, I wasn't allergic to anything in it. And two hours later, I was being rushed to the hospital and my limbs were purple and I could not breathe. Mm -hmm. And I had already gotten an emergency dose of epinephrine. So I and they, they, I could hear them talking, even though my vision was kind of tunnely. And I said, I need you to call Thomas. <laughs> I need to talk to him. And so my aunt was in the side seat and she dialed him on my phone and my mom was driving like a maniac. I was just about to turn 16 at this point. And, uh, he answered the phone and my aunt filled him in on what was going on. And I, I picked up and or he picked up and I told him, I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you sooner. Um, and I explained that we were on the way to hospital and that, you know, I was in anaphylactic shock. And um, I said, I love you. Mm. <laughs> and um, he paused for a minute because he was in shock that I was, you know, headed to the hospital. And he said, I love you too. I'll be right there. <laughs> and so he got to the hospital and uh, we got there. But by that point, the epinephrine had actually kicked in it took forever but it finally had so I was fine and they just charged me and um he walked me outside with like his arm under me um because I was very very tipsy I was like let's not do that again um but anyway so we didn't talk about that for a bit because technically I was you know still 15 I was just about to turn 16 but um once I was closer to turning 16 I, I we waited a couple months and I talked about it 
with him and I was like, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to like freak you out or anything, but, um, I meant that, <laughs> but I kind of wanted to talk about what I meant because I didn't mean what most people mean. And he was like, I didn't either. So let's do this. And, um, I told him, I was like, I'm, I meant it as a promise. I meant it as like first Corinthians type thing where, you know, it's not, you know, oh, I have butterflies for you or anything. It's, you know, I'm going to stand by your side and I'm going to try to love you unconditionally as God's loved mm-hmm. me and, you know, be faithful and everything. And um, he he meant the exact same thing. So it was wonderful that we were on the same page. So we talked about it and he was like, okay, here's the deal. If you were any older, I would date you right now, <laughs> but you're not. <laughs> And we're going to have to wait. And so we planned on waiting until I was 18 and just still being best friends until Mm -hmm. then. Well, my 16th birthday rolled around and uh, we were uh, about to go to history study. And he was like, "Uh, let's go talk to your parents. And so we did because 16 is the age of consent in Oklahoma, um, Mm -hmm. which didn't really matter much to us because we weren't going to be doing anything physical anyways besides holding hands. But we still wanted to be on the safe side. Mm -hmm. So anyways, he talked to my parents and they gave their blessing. They were overjoyed. And... Then we started dating, and then the next year we got engaged, and then the next year we were married, and then the next year we had a baby. Well, it looks like you didn't waste any time. Before we uh, before we continue, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I got Rebecca Lemke on here this week. We're talking about her book, The Scarlet Virgins. But if you're here next week, I'm going to be your guest along with a few others. We've had uh, one of my friends posted some about how there are some people out there that are doing things in apologetics that aren't really big names, but he thinks deserve a mention. He started referring to us as the mentionables. And we are going to be putting together our own podcast all together. And I said, why don't we do the first one right here on the Deeper Waters podcast? It's going to be about maybe three or four of us all together. We're going to talk about Fementiona Bars and what we are doing. So if you're here next week, I'll be one of them. And my efforts will be here. And I'm not sure how it's going to go, but we're going to have a fun time together. But for now, let's get back to Rebecca talking about her story from the book, The Scarlet Virgins, and such. And, you know, there's, there's so much I can relate to. I mean, when I started dating my now wife, there was about a nearly 10-year difference there. And I think the only reason her parents really let her get near me is because they knew I had a good reputation. I mean... Yes. My, Mike's mentor was Gary Habermas, and he comes to him, and I'm sure says, hey, this is a good guy, I'll talk to him. So, well, if if you say he's a good guy, then he's a good guy. And I, I could also point out that since Gary introduced us, he was the one who married us eventually as well. He was kind enough to do the ceremony and such. And That is awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I just found your story really very interesting to hear because, I mean, it, it kind of, it, it's just how you managed to do this in a purity culture. And were, were there a lot of concerns when you were dating and engaged? Did you have a lot of fear and guilt with things? With Thomas, I did not. Okay. Um, I felt guilty about the the first crush that I had that I had kept yeah. for seven years. Mm. Um, but with Thomas, things were just so they they just came so naturally that mm. you know we we struggled. We definitely struggled. Yeah. But he yeah. was very protective of me. For as much as the situation should have been very sketchy because of our age difference yeah. and because of how young I was, he. Literally, I tell him, I've told him every day for a week because of some other things that have come to light in the last few months that, you know, he really was a godsend. I do not believe that our relationship was just a fluke. I do not believe that it was just, oh, I could have picked anybody and been fine. I believe that the only reason that I am alive today is because God sent him into my life. Mm -hmm. And I, it's really amazing to me um, how things played out. And I, we did struggle, especially after we got married, because I did have a lot of guilt um, just from, you know, my identity changing from, you know, virgin to non-virgin. Mm. But he has been so patient with me. Um, we didn't have that much pushback in our relationship, except for people that weren't really our friends to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the people that really loved us did voice concerns they were like yeah this is a big age difference and yeah she's Mm. really young um but part of what made it good was that he did have the reputation he did he'd stuck by a woman for nine years waiting for her instead of you know going after all these other girls when he could have in college and things like that he never touched her um not even to hold hands or anything like that and you know he he just had this this reputation that was perfect and you know i i didn't even have i hadn't had time to build a reputation i was you know yeah. i was just waiting um to be old enough to even you know consider courting or dating and so you know we had that going for us but also we had the fact that i did finish high school at 16 so by the time we were dating i was in college so my my timeline of things accomplished in life had been sped up by at least 2 to 3 years mm-hmm. and so we were more on an emotionally similar level than most couples even ones close in age and that really helped our case and our relationship as well when it came to people you know questioning and things like that and Purity culture actually helped us a little bit because we did have such an age difference that it was prudent for us to not, you know, go too far in our relationship. Not that we would have anyways, but we were very, very yeah. like cautious about being in public with either our dome light on in the car or like being out of the car and things like that. So people could yeah. see what we were doing. So I think that that's kind of, you know, some things about our relationship that that were impacted in and sometimes in a good way with purity culture. Yeah. You know, when you talk about a, a woman being supposed to be protected by a man and such, and, you know, I, I can think of two stories. Wow. The first one when we were dating. My wife had a guy who she'd known in school who had a crush on her who was trying to contact her and reestablish a relationship. She was trying to go away, go away, please. I've got another guy right now. We're very serious. Please just leave me alone and he wouldn't and her mom said to him well why don't you give nick his number 
And so oh, next no. time he did it, she sent me an email and said, here's his number. Can you please deal with him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can do that. So I call him and he goes, hello, I want you to leave her alone. Who is this? This is her boyfriend. No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I'm her boy. I'm the one she wants. Allie wants you to leave her alone. Like, she wants you to go away. She wants you to get lost. She, she just wants to be with me. Mm-hmm. Allie wants you to leave her alone. He said, well, let's, uh, let's compare ourselves, okay? Look, I'm up here. I'm in New York. I'm working on my bachelor's. What do you got? You got nothing. I'm in seminary, and I am working on my master's, and I'm at the top of my class. He says, well, look, um, my, my dad, uh, he's... He's a detective, and uh, if you if you don't stop, I'll have a restraining order put on you. So go ahead, do it. I have I put a restraining order on you so fast it'll make your head spin. <laughs> and that that was it. In fact, a few months later, we got a call from from his dad, that detective, and he was apologizing to us about the whole thing. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and then the other things I can think of is. I mean, you've seen what's happened with my wife and I on Facebook, how I mm-hmm. talk to her so much and such. But I also turn on notifications for things she posts and such because she's very sensitive. And I know people can give her a hard time. And if someone gets on there and they disagree with my wife, that's okay. I disagree with her on some things. We still get along. But I think there's an unwritten rule on our Facebook pages, and that's if you ever dare insult his wife. So everyone else, sit back. Get the popcorn. There will be a show. He shows no mercy whatsoever to anyone who insults his wife. <laughs> that is the best thing ever. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, she had a, a, a friend once, no longer a friend, but he was in the military and he dared to insult her on Facebook. And I went straight after him. And later he told, he told her, he said, I am scared of your husband. And my father is good. I want you to be scared of me. I want you to be terrified of me. Yes. Wow, that is awesome. You know, now, you talk about having some difficulties after you get married. And this is something that's also talked about a lot in uh, Lauren Winner's book on real sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity, that so many women... They grew up with a message of no, 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 no. Dirty, 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 dirty. Wrong, 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 wrong. And then somehow on the wedding night, they're supposed to immediately flip a switch and everything's okay. It can often be a disaster, can't it? Yes. Yeah. And I, I've been so surprised that mm-hmm. so many people use that flip a switch language. Mm-hmm. I think that's just because it's the easiest way to describe. Mm-hmm. I read a blog post once when I was in one of the communities after uh, after I turned 18 and we mm-hmm. got married. And it was, I, I think it was titled um, Purity to Porn Star or something. Mm-hmm. And that, it, was, it described it so well. It was very much what I felt like the expectation was supposed to be because not only were they like, okay, you, you can't know anything about sex before you get married, which makes it really hard. Yeah. Um, but it was also, okay, you have to be like just a complete amazing wife who knows how to do everything to her husband and has all these outfits and things like mm-hmm. that, but not be immoral yourself. But you, you have to do that because otherwise he'll stray. And yeah. so you're supposed to, <laughs> in like a 24-hour window, go mm-hmm. from not knowing anything about sex to... Knowing how to basically be a stripper. 
And it was just, it was so cathartic for me to read because I was like, yes, that is exactly what it felt like the expectation was. Mm -hmm. Because if your husband strays, it's your fault. So Mm -hmm. that's what we were taught, right? And uh, that was just, it was, it described it so well where Mm -hmm. it was like, yep, you're, you're supposed to go from this to this. And you know, you have no training. Nobody comes up to you and tells you, oh, this is what you need to do. Nobody gives Mm -hmm. you any resources. It's just, it's so mind boggling to me. Yeah, now, I think both of the sexes, generally as they get closer to the wedding, if, if they've waited until marriage, they are both, in some sense, looking forward to the wedding night. But there was always some sense of fear. I mean, heck, even I had some sense of fear going in, thinking, you know, this is, this is really going to happen and such. Probably took me about two seconds to get rid of all that fear as a guy <laughs> and such. But for women, I think it's really different, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And I, I think it's because the dynamic is so different for mm-hmm. us. It's not, we are often the receptor instead mm-hmm. of the aggressor, mm-hmm. which I, I don't even like using the word aggressor, but that's how it felt like yeah. um, to a lot of us. <laughs> and so we feel very helpless and you know, it doesn't show for us, really, I don't feel like. Because if a man doesn't want to have sex, his body very clearly shows that. But mm-hmm. if a woman doesn't want to, you know, there's still ways to do it. Mm-hmm. And and there's, you know, it may be super painful for her. But at the same time, he might not even know because she might mm-hmm. not want him to know because she might feel ashamed about the fact that she can't even do something like that. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, her body's betraying her or, you know, yeah. her her anxiety is betraying her and all that. So I think there's a lot that it's, it's not as easy to get over because there's not the same kind of, you know, feedback for us initially. And just in general, it's, it's almost a power dynamic that's been set up to be unhealthy Mm -hmm. for us. And so instead of it being, you know, a loving thing, it's, you know, almost a grab for power in some ways, especially yeah. if you've been raised like I was to believe that you just had to listen to the oldest guy in the room and that sort of thing. So I think that's a big difference between everything. Yeah, I think that's something that leads to struggles, especially in marriage, because for a man, he sees this really as an expression of love. And saying, yes. how, how can you not see this as love? And she doesn't. And so then when she doesn't respond, she's like, he's saying, do you not love me like I love you? Do you just not desire me and such? Yeah. And that's something I did not understand for a really, really long Mm -hmm. time. My husband explained that to me and I felt so bad when he actually explained it to me because I was like, I didn't know that that was what things were like for you. I didn't Mm -hmm. realize like, because I, for as much as I grew up just with the purity culture stuff, I also grew up with my family sort of being like, oh, guys are stupid. You know, guys are dumb. Guys don't think well. And and they are kind of emotionless. Turn on they, any TV sitcom pretty much and the father is usually the stupidest person on it. Yeah. And so I was under the impression that, you know, guys were emotionless and, mm. you know, all they wanted was sex and stuff like that. So for, for me, it was, okay, you can't be like, you can't have emotions and want sex like they're they're opposites for me and so like because of how everything was set up in my mind they were opposite and so for him to say that I was like okay so they are one not opposite and two completely attached this is gonna take a while (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I'm seeing or hearing you say all that like it's a big shock, and I'm yes. thinking, well, I thought that was kind of an obvious, which I think is one of the big problems between the sexes because all the unspoken yes. assumptions yes. that we each have. Most definitely. That was one of the most mind-blowing, earth-shattering things ever for me, <laughs> especially early marriage. Now, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. Everything we do here is listener-supported by people like you. I don't pay our guests to come on. I couldn't afford to pay them. And thankfully, most of them send me their books free of charge and such, like Rebecca here. But I do spend a lot of time reading and going through them and such. And to do all this, to have a good show... We could really use your support, so I suggest going to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and you'll find the link on the side, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries, and in that there's a sublink. You click on that, and it brings you to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. You hit that, and that you make your donation. Then you contact me or Ari or Mike, or Debbie, my in-laws, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And we will give that donation, and it will be tax-deductible. You can also buy some e-books I've written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian, or ones that I've co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy, or Groundlets, or... God and Natural Disasters. There's a few out there. And then, guys, if we've been talking all this time about understanding the ladies and things like that and dating, well, here's something you need to understand about so many ladies. They really like jewelry. I mean, would you agree with that, Rebecca? Absolutely. Well, we have a jewelry store here. My friend Lena Clester runs that. And if you need some help with it, get in touch with me. But you go there and you make a purchase. And if you want to make sure, you can let me know about it. And you can buy something special for that lady in your life. And whatever you buy, 25% of it goes to Deeper Waters. So, guys, you can buy something. And the way I like to say it on here is you can buy something for that special lady in your life to make up for that big screw-up that you recently made with her. Or you can buy something to make up that big screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. <laughs> and if you can't donate to us in any of these ways, please at least go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. It really lets people know about the show more and more. Now, Rebecca, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? 
I really, really like to write love on her arms. I don't mm. know if they have a donation button, but if you want to donate anything on my behalf, I would, I would suggest going there. Tara's about to write love on her arms. It is a suicide prevention、um, um, charity. I can't vouch for all of their content, but、mm. I have known a lot of friends who have majorly benefited from their organization. So、mm. that, is why, that is why I'm very much supportive of them because if, if it weren't for them, some of my friends might not be here. Well, that certainly hits home to me also when I first met my wife and she was going through a hard time. They weren't kidding. She had just had an overdose attempt. So, oh my those, goodness. Yep. Those kinds of things do hit home and such.、Mm-hmm. And it, it can still be a struggle for her today. So,、yeah. I definitely encourage suicide prevention.、Mm-hmm. Now, to get back to what you were talking about,、um, college humor, every now and then they have some videos that are extremely accurate. And they had one about if sex was like it was. In the media, and you see this video of this guy and girl getting together, like this cabin, and they're in the middle of making out, and then every single disaster thing goes wrong entirely, and such. And I, I, I'm so tempted sometimes, I'd like to show this video to couples that are engaged and getting ready to be married and say, Look, if you think that most of the things that you see in media, that the couple just go into a bedroom and everything works out perfectly and you all come out in eternal bliss and such, it's going to happen. It's <laughs> not. <laughs> I'm going to have to go look up that video because I have not heard of it, but it sounds like something that I would enjoy. <laughs>、mm-hmm. I have to, all of my friends are getting married right now. Yeah. So, I'm going to have to go look it up and send it to them because I've been trying to think, like, what can I give them? What can I give them? What can I give them?、Mm-hmm. I've heard, like, Sheila's book,、um, what's it called? The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex.、Yep. It's good, but there's still some things that I would add to it. So, I'm not sure whether I'm going to get them that or something else, but I'm like trying to gather my resources to send to them before their honeymoon. <laughs> my wife and I read Sheet Music by Kevin Lehman before we got I've、there. heard that's so good. That's like <laughs> on my list to get、yeah. when, I, when I have enough money to. I really, really want to. Now, with what I've just said, I mean, to my guy friends out there, I don't want to sound like I'm giving you a downer or anything, <laughs> as if to say, yeah, sex just isn't everything it's cracked up to be and such. Actually, it's a whole lot more than it's cracked up to be. But at the same time, when you're first starting out and things like that, you're not going to do perfect. But that's okay, because if when you marry and you marry for life, you have the rest of your lives. To perfect things, and you get better and better at things as time goes on. And that's okay. There's a learning curve, but you grow through it together and you laugh together through it. I think that's great advice.、Mm-hmm. In fact, what you were talking about also about、uh, how a wedding night goes. Jay Parker, in fact, at her blog, Hot, Holy, and Humorous. Oh, and yes, I love her. She's been on this show before talking about the book based on the blog, and she had a Someone c o m e in from a young newlywed recently saying that they were still having troubles. And so many people on comment section saying, Yep, this happened to us. This happened to us. Yep, this happens.、Yeah. And I think a lot of people in the US, it's more common than you realize. Yeah. Now, so what did it take to get you adjusted, though, for young women out there who are struggling with this? Oh, you can't see it, but I'm face palming right now.、Um, 
Wow. So I did get Sheila's book, The um, Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. It was kind of too late by that point because I'd kind of learned all of all of that on my own. Um, but it took a lot of positive reinforcement from my husband. He has always been mm. very, very great about figuring out when, even when I don't want to say I'm uncomfortable with something, figuring out that I'm uncomfortable with stuff because I, I tried to push myself when we were early on and it did not go well. Um, and so he's been very, very patient. Um, he literally, one of the things that's helped the most is he will repeat when we're, when we're not like doing anything at all, just, you know, sex is good. You know, sex is good. You know, sex is good. Um, it's not bad. It's not dirty, all that stuff. And he just will, you know, throughout the week, you know, randomly tell me that. And it, it's usually at times when I'm really struggling with it, when I'm really Mm -hmm. struggling conceptually with, you know, all of that. And so that's super helpful. He sent me different articles and things that have been really helpful. Um, I have met so many great people. I actually just got added to a group two days ago and I cannot remember the name of it. Um, I think it's graciously and purely his is what it's called. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a brand new group and it is biblically sound. And I could cry saying that because I have not found very many groups that are biblically sound, Mm -hmm. but is a biblically sound group of of ladies who have gotten out of purity culture and who do believe in the sanctity of marriage as God defined it and who do still value purity, but not in the way we were taught. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has been so helpful the last two days because of that, of feeling so alone and not having that as a resource. That's, you know, a huge reason I wrote my book was because I wanted people to know that they weren't alone if they were still Christian and still valued purity, but were kind of questioning, you know, everything that had happened. And so I definitely recommend that group. I will make sure on the name, but it's just been things like that, little articles and things. I've, I've gathered a ton of them up. Sheila has a ton of really, really good ones. Mm -hmm. Um, and Katie's video, things like that, where it's just kind of normalizing sex is good. Um, Song of Solomon, I would recommend reading if you're married um, and just things like that, where you just, after that conditioning, because that's really what it is, you have to condition yourself back to a healthy perspective. So it takes time, (laughs) be patient with yourself. And, you know, if your spouse is patient, all the better. And just, you know, pray and give it to Jesus as well, because there's so many things that we hold on to and hurt that we hold on to. And it's really hard to give it up sometimes because it's what we're so used to. But I, I definitely recommend doing that as well. Yeah, my wife has had her own struggles here, and I've been, for patient husband. I think <laughs> if she was right here, she would say, yes, my husband is very patient. Maybe some she'd like me to be a little bit more patient, but <laughs> I am patient. And I, in fact, started my own group for men on Facebook. And it's a, men, a group for men who are Christian, only Christians, and we're married or engaged or dating or just hoping to date and marry. And it's all about helping us learn to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And I try and get the ones who aren't married in there as well because they need to learn this stuff in advance. And they can have the mentors here who have been married and who are married and say, hey, this is what it's like and such. And here's what you need to know. And I can definitely say for guys who are struggling so as your wife's getting used to things and such, and this was never an issue for me, but I'm sure it is for many men, under no circumstances in your life whatsoever is pornography acceptable. Mm-hmm. 
I mm. think that's I think that that group is a great ministry. I didn't know that mm. anything like that existed, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm very glad that you have that in there because I've seen so many men who think that it's completely okay because it's yeah. normal, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah, what I tell men all the time is say, look, the way I see it. If something happened to me, God forbid, my ministry could still go on because there's a thousand and one apologists coming up out there. They can do the work. They can answer the questions. They can do the research, yada, yada, yada. But there is only one person now who can be a husband to Allie. And Mm. I would rather, if I succeed at everything else in ministry and fail at being a husband, then I have failed ultimately, because my first requirement is to be a good husband to my wife. And I could add in also be a good father to your children if you have them, because they don't have any other earthly father that they can relate to. Mm-hmm. And when when I went on our honeymoon, I, I decided to start with solidifying that. Cause we had someone give us a donation, so we went to Ocean Isle Beach for our honeymoon. We stayed there. I think Sunday through Friday. And so we came back. There are still some days left, but I talked with her parents and my parents beforehand and said, we are going to be going to Ocean Isle Beach together. Unless it's an emergency, I don't want to hear from you. I don't want yeah. you to contact us. And I'm still an academic, but I said, the only book I'm bringing with me is my Bible. I'm not doing any of our reading that week. I am not checking email that week. I'm not checking Facebook even that week. Because, I mean, I know you girls out there could be so tempted to put up pictures of your of your wedding on Facebook and such, but please wait. Because chances are, if you do that, you just be talking to your husband. Oh, here's what so-and-so said about the wedding and such. And in essence, it's kind of like bringing other people with you on your honeymoon. That's a good point. For that week... Let the rest of the world not exist. Now, if we'd been out in public and we'd met someone who needed to know Jesus and such, yeah, I'd go into ministry mode of it. But then, but I'd say, your honeymoon, you're starting the stage for your relationship. Let them know that there's no exceptions. You are devoted to that person. I made that decision, and I have no regrets about not speaking to people on the outside, not having them contact us. That week, because that week was meant to solidify my relationship with Allie at the start. That is so amazing. I really, really love that, that you did that. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about the the whole purity thing about, uh, what what would you say to someone who has been the victim of abuse, rape, something like that? That's a little close to home, but... Mm -hmm. um, I would say that what happened to you doesn't define you. Mm-hmm. What happened to you doesn't mean that you are not sexually pure. And also, you know, no matter who it was and what happened, God still loves you. Mm-hmm. And it's not a God still loves you in spite of that. It's no, God always loved you. And that didn't change it at all. And I think those would be the things that I would start out with. Um, And, you know, I've had friends in that situation and it's been very, very difficult for all of us because of what happened and because they took the blame for it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so I think I would also say, you know, it's not your fault. <laughs> and what would you say to guys who are dating girls and they even know that this has happened or they find out that it's happened, you know? I think the most important thing for a guy who's dating a girl this has happened to and he finds out is to not react. Mm. Um, and I don't mean not react and I don't have any feelings about it, but I mean don't react in a way that she could perceive as you think of her differently now. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is very, very hard to be on the other side of that and not know what people are reacting to Mm -hmm. and not know exactly what's going through their mind. Mm -hmm. I would say be honest and, you know, um, be comforting and things like that, but don't do anything that she might think that you think less of her because of it. And I think we could definitely add some about that. Once you get married, be patient because it will take some time. Yes, there's so many things that could trigger memories and Mm -hmm. things like that, which I know so many guys complain about that. But honestly, women really do try to get past things like that. And it takes sometimes years, sometimes decades even to do that. So yes, definitely be patient with that. And I think women at the same time can understand that if men, for, for we men, that when we're talking about sexuality, we're not just talking about a physical action, but we're talking about something that beats at very central to the heart of a man. And one of the best ways you can help your man to be the man he needs to be is to actively show your desire for him like that. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've really been learning that in the last year, I think. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, early on, obviously we had a baby very early yeah. and I had a rough pregnancy. So that, that even kind of retroactively made him a part of our lives outside of the womb a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really struck me how much I actually do need to pursue Thomas as, mm-hmm. as yeah. you know, my husband and all of that. And yeah. that's not something I had modeled for me either, where, you know, I thought that men were just, you know, they existed. They didn't really have feelings and all of that. Mm-hmm. And that's been very eye-opening. But it's also been encouraging for me because I am a woman who likes to, you know, pursue and likes to do romantic gestures and things like that. And I've always felt mm-hmm. bad for it. And now I'm like, oh, I have an outlet. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's definitely definitely something that I really enjoy now. Yeah, I, I can say, for instance, as an Aspie, uh, when I married my wife, my diet was very, very limited. And she's the one who's got me to push through that in many ways. There's still a lot of work to do, but we can go to Mexican restaurants now. We couldn't have done that when I was dating her. And If I'm out somewhere else, I can order seafood. Never thought I'd be eating that when I was dating her. And all of it's because my wife is just so motivating to me. (laughs) And I went, I'd be lying if I said sexuality isn't one of the motivating things because we men, we live and we want to please our wives immensely. And this includes especially in the bedroom. And if our wives aren't fair and kind of like, where I? I guess I just don't really please her and such. And my wife still has things she's working on with me to get me to change, but getting to be with her is one of the best motivations that I have to be a better man. 
That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Do you, this is something I think about a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you, what do you think of the advice that a lot of parents give their daughters as don't change for a man? Well, it would depend on what it is. If you're lowering your moral standards and such, by all means, don't change those. But if a man inspires you to be a better man, or if it's a change in something that's not a non-moral thing, like maybe your mm-hmm. man's a big sports fan, and you're not so much where you say, you know what, I'm willing to look into this and such, then yeah, yeah that would be an okay change. That's the only thing you should never change is never lower your moral standards. I'm the same way. That's mm-hmm. that's what I've thought for throughout the years. Yeah, although when it comes to sports here at our household, it's it's a very <laughs> odd thing. When the Super Bowl's on, my wife's watching it, screaming, glued, so excited. I'm reading and I put my book down in the commercials. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cute. <laughs> now, what would you say also to the girls and the guys out there who have been dating, and lo and behold, a moment of passion comes, they've made a mistake. I would say don't let that mistake define you. Mm -hmm. Yes, we are, yes, you could, you know, be considered, you know, sexually immoral now, but Jesus forgives us, and, you know, yeah, there are ramifications, Mm -hmm. earthly ramifications for our actions, Mm -hmm. but don't let that moment define who you are. Don't mm-hmm. let that one slip up make you have other slip ups because you believe that's who you are now. Right. That's not who we are. We're forgiven in Christ, <laughs> and that's the way that we need to live as Christians. Mm-hmm. And of course, like Paul would say, forgiveness doesn't mean we have a license yes. to do things, but at the same time, it means we do take it seriously. And you know, I think part of the whole message that we're getting wrong with our young people in the church with sex is we give them all negatives over and over and over. We never seem to say any positives. And what I've been talking about lately with women when it comes to this topic is the whole idea about sex being something sacred. And that's something that I don't think I ever really heard growing up, I never really heard any theological ramifications of such thing, but now I myself as a theologian like this and think, these are everywhere, how could I have not known this, how could anyone not know this, I say, no, sex is sacred, and it's also sacred because men and women are both sacred, and they all deserve to be treated sacred. Mm-hmm. And I think that word, mm-hmm. like just tying sacredness to sex has been very, very healing for me mm-hmm. because there's so much about just the secular culture and Christian culture that makes sex mm-hmm. sacrilegious and mm-hmm. tainted and dirty and all of that. But the truth of the matter is that it is sacred. Mm-hmm. And I cling to that, especially on bad days, because that no matter what everyone says, no matter how many people say that it's dirty and all that, it truly is sacred. Mm-hmm. And and that, you know, truth can't be changed no matter, you know, who says anything different. Yeah. Uh, we were talking with someone recently about this and I said, like, you know, here, you want to know my proof that this isn't something just for guys, which is usually the idea given, but Mm -hmm. here is some proof that this is made for females, and here's the only argument I'm going to give for this. God gave women a clitoris. That's it. That's true. That's really true. 
Yeah, and, and for those who don't know, because this person I'm talking to didn't know, the only purpose that serves in a female body is so she can experience sexual pleasure. That's it. And I tell people who are getting married, sex is a gift God has given to both of you, and it's meant to help you two grow together and appreciate and love one another all the more. I really like that. That's yeah. awesome. You know, I find it a shame as well, in fact, think about that. We Christians have been given such a negative stereotype that we tend to think we have to go to the world to learn how to do sex well and such. Yes. When really, if we're the ones that should claim ownership and say, this is God's gift and we are the people of God, we should know the gift better than anyone else. The world should be coming to us to see the best way to have sex. See, and I feel the same way. I feel like we really have done a poor job about actually embracing the gift of sex. Yep. And sadly, when we do that, our our culture looks at the message in the world and says, well, it looks like the world is having all the fun right now, and the Christians are a bunch of prudes. Yeah. Well, I feel like it hurts our testimony, too, Mm, when we say that a gift from God is bad. Yeah. It really, really hurts our testimony because it's it's something that's obvious to everyone else that, yeah, sex is good. Otherwise, you know, there wouldn't be all this Mm -hmm. hype about it. And yet we're over here like, nope, that's Mm. bad. And I I feel like just denying that truth hurts our testimony. Uh, I think it's something ironic when people are are meet to me that, Christians don't really value sex as much and such. And I say, no, actually, our reason for saving it from marriage is because we value it more. If Mm -hmm. you're doing things like pornography and sex outside of marriage with just anyone you meet and such, you're really treating sex as something common, just another fun hobby that you two do together and such. But for us, we treat it as sacred because we put so many barriers around it because this is something really good and worth guarding. I mm-hmm. I usually compare it to nuclear energy. Say so if you use nuclear energy in the right way with the right controls and such, you get wonderful helpful results that benefit of society. If you use mm-hmm. it in the wrong way, you get Chernobyl. Yeah. <laughs> what what do you wish via the church would start teaching young men and young women both about sexuality? I wish that they would teach from a perspective of love rather than fear. Mm-hmm. And not when, when I say love rather than fear, I do not mean what even a lot mm-hmm. of Christians mean by that. I mean love in a way that is actually set up for us in 1 Corinthians where it has boundaries mm-hmm. and yeah. it has reason and it has you know, forgiveness in, in it as well. I feel like, you know, it would be nice to actually teach people how their bodies work and how their physiology works mm-hmm. and not, not try to motivate them by fear, but by, you know, respect and love of other people and, you know, trying to, you know, accept Jesus's love, even though we are sinners, because a lot of my friends have problems with that because they have self-hatred. They're like, I, I, I've tried to reject Jesus's love because I don't feel like I'm lovable. So mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, that's important that we teach people, you know, how to actually be loved and, 
in, in that, I think we also teach them how to love other people in reality rather than, you know, all the definitions of love that the world has set up for us. I think that's the foundation for teaching kids about sex properly. You know, I, I think as a misfit, this should definitely also go beyond the kids and the teenagers and such growing up. Because one of my concerns I have with the church is we live in a world where the world is talking about sex 24-7 around yes. us. You go to a church, I could probably count on one hand the number of sermons I've heard about sex in the church. And I'm, I'm going to turn 37 this month. Count on one hand the number of messages I've heard in a church about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that, doesn't that seem to be a problem? Because what, tell, what I tell people is, look, if we're not giving a message, our young people are only going to get one message about sex. Guess which one they're more likely to believe? The one that's told them every single day from the media or the one that's told like once a year, if that often, from a pulpit? Yeah, and I feel like it's negligence on the church's yeah. part to not because it is a huge part of creation and it it's it's not bad. Yes, there is a degree to which it needs to be approached in a gentle manner that, mm-hmm. you know, is not um, traumatizing to people. But at the same time, you know, all of the stuff that happened with purity culture and me, I, I really do believe is classical conditioning. Mm-hmm. And every day we as Christians go out into the world and get classically conditioned by the world. Mm-hmm. And what the world tells us about sex is that sex is a commodity and sex is cheap. Mm-hmm. And we can even be tainted by that in, in the mind and begin to believe that, which is why the church needs to be talking about it, like you said, past just puberty, because we need to be reminded that it is sacred and that it is not a commodity. It mm-hmm. is not just bodies, it's not just physical, and it's not just you know for entertainment. Mm-hmm. There's a huge and and complex nature to sex that is even spiritual and that's why I think that the church should be addressing it more often at least because you know we have all these messages in puberty and you know going forward as well and I mean Shanti Ferdhorn did some great research to show that the idea of a divorce culture is not as prominent as we think it is among Christians Mm-hmm. But it's still a problem. And I, I think it's a tragedy, even if it, divorce is justified, such as in a case of abuse or adultery, even if it's justified, mm-hmm. I think every divorce is a tragedy on yeah. some level. And I think we could prevent a lot of divorces if we had these kinds of talks going on because sex sex is one of the big things couples fight about. It's sex, mm-hmm. money, and in-laws, I think, are the biggest things couples fight about. I believe it. Mm-hmm. And if we followed this route, we could probably end a whole lot of debates about it and, mar- and stop a whole lot of marriages from ending divorce by saying, hey, this is what it's really like for us here. And mm-hmm. we can get both sides together and say, well, geez, we'd never really seen it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just setting people, resetting at least if they're married, resetting people's expectations about what marriage is actually like, because we get, you know, the idea from the culture of what sex is like, but we also get an idea of what marriage is like, and it's not at all what marriage is actually like usually. Yeah. And uh, I think especially goes back to how men 
are viewed as well, because, like we said earlier, men, you turn on any sitcom and such today, usually the father is the dumbest figure on the show, because he's just this big lunkhead who can't do anything right, and all, all, here, all he's good for on the show is just sex, and that's it, and that's all he can think about, and he's he's usually made the butt of the jokes. I mean, there is a real war against men, I think, in our culture, and a lot of Christian women have sadly taken that on without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, what also would you say to young people who are struggling, and they, they want to wait till marriage, but they're struggling? What would you tell them? I would tell them that purity rings are not the answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I I wore a purity ring, but I wore it because I was scared. Mm-hmm. Because I felt like if I didn't look like somebody's property, so in this instance, God's property, um, or you know, belong to some man that I was going to get taken advantage of. Because that mm-hmm. seemed like the only way to protect myself was to be somebody else's property. Mm-hmm. And so... I, you know, kind of caution against purity rings just because they, they for me had that n- not actual conviction behind them, and in in the sense of that's I didn't wear them because you know of my conviction to stay pure. I wore them for other motives, and I know a lot of people wear them for other motives, like you know, so people don't ask them on dates, or you know, so people can see that they fit in with the youth group because everybody else has one. And, you know, I think that so often it also ends up being used as a tier system for Christians mm-hmm. where they there's people who are pure and people who have had sexual assault, so they're not pure anymore, is what they tell you. And, you know, there's also people who have messed up and it ends up being, a, oh, I'm better than you, holier art thou thing. Mm-hmm. So I recommend actually having general convictions and actually spending time in prayer and actually setting up boundaries before you begin dating. Yeah. Um, so that you have actual convictions to get you through that. Yeah, I, I, I go back to what Lauren Winner said, that young men and women need a whole idea of how sex fits into a Christian worldview, because if a guy and a girl are on the couch together alone, and there's absolutely no one else around, no one who's going to disturb him and such, it's going to take more than just a few verses from Paul to make anything stop happening. Yes, you do have to be actually, you know, thinking through things and preventing situations in which your your self-control is going to get broken down to a point that you cannot handle. Yeah, I mean, even today, I, I blogged on this yesterday about why I follow what's been called the pinstool of Billy Graham at first, that, I mean, unless there was a real emergency situation, I don't put myself in a position where I'm going to be in a room or traveling alone with a woman who is not my wife and who is not family because yes. there's no sense in it. I don't want to risk temptation. And usually when affairs start, they don't start off, I don't think, physically. They start yeah. off emotionally. You form a connection and then it just grows and grows and grows. And before too long, you're meeting in a hotel room together. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's a very, very smart way to be. I'm the same way. The one time that I've had somebody in my house, it was a maintenance man. Mm-hmm. Um, when my husband was gone, I opened the window and like kept the door open so that people could see in. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> because I was so nervous. My pastor taught me to do that. He was like, you know, if you're ever alone with a guy in a situation that like you didn't intend to be, then you, you know, make everything as open as possible. And that's really helped me just to feel safe and to preserve both of our reputations. In fact, when I was single, we had some Mormon sisters visiting us and the first time I came by, we couldn't really do much. The next time we said, we're meeting in a public place and we're going to discuss these things together. Yeah. It's a really smart idea. Well, Rebecca, we're coming to the end of our time here. I don't think we have enough time to get into another topic discussion. So let's uh, go ahead and talk about how people can get the book. The books, the Scarlet Versions, the paperback right now on Amazon right now is fourteen ninety nine, and the Kindle version is seven ninety nine. Now, do you have a, a blog or a website and an email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yes. So I have a book uh, website related to specifically the Scarlet Virgin stuff, mm-hmm. and it is scarletvirgins.com. Mm-hmm. You can find all of my podcasts, all of my media appearances. This will be considered one, so it will be on there um, when this goes live. You can also uh, find the book from that website. You can go to Amazon from there and just kind of get a feel about what I'm all about. Um, I also have just a general website. It's rebeccalimke.com that you can get on my email list and find out about the potential Scarlet Virgin virgins too. Um, <laughs> and um, all of my other projects that I do, I have some fiction and I, I just write general um, Christian content as well. So you can find me there at RebeccaLimke.com. So. If a sequel to the Scarlet Versions comes out, maybe we can talk about a second interview then. Yeah, that would be great. Do you have uh, any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience? Well, just my main message, which is that you're not defined by what you do and don't do sexually, or what you have and haven't done sexually, rather, and that our identity is found in Christ. Well, I'd like to uh, thank you for coming on today, and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. All right. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And I'd like to remind you, next week, we're going to have myself as a guest, along with a few others, the Mentionables are here, small figures, big noise. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.